from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Uh, data privacy has been a hot topic lately, and I'm joined by two wonderful guests this week to uh, discuss this more. Uh, if uh, you are interested in data privacy, I recently did a, a monologue episode about it as well, talking a little bit about the tracking on the internet and how is this actually different if you even go all the way back to the Nielsen ratings where advertisers were tracking you uh, from the moment television existed. So uh, internet's got some different ways it's tracking, different things that are impacting data privacy, and we're going to talk about that today and, and learn learn uh, more about uh, how this is all working in our digital age. So, uh, Lisa, please go ahead and introduce yourself, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, I'm Lisa McComb from Rectify. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders, and with us today is Melissa Unsell-Smith, as she's a co-founder of Rectify as well. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, talk to us about what Rectify focuses on? Sure. Thanks for having us on, Brett. My name is Melissa Unsell-Smith, and I am co-founder and president of Rectify. And at Rectify, we are solving challenging privacy issues by leveraging privacy-enabled artificial intelligence to help protect consumer identities when data is being shared or exported outside of a company or organization. So... And this is uh, one I, I talked about with uh, the GDPR data privacy piece, and this is now making a number of businesses are going through and f actually following all the rules and putting up a disclosure list of if you share information with me, who am I going to share it with and what are they going to use it for? And uh, one of the European banks listed 350 some odd companies that they share your information with. And some of the places there, like they real clear, like they share it with another company so that that company can answer questions if you have a support request about how to use their website um, and that's what they're going to use the information for as you start to read through the whole list of the 350 plus life gets complicated life gets very complicated in those scenarios because there's so much data being created and there's even a statistic out there that the entire data in the world is doubling every 1.2 years yeah that's incredible. And so these companies are capturing that and they're leveraging it, but they now, especially with the EU GDPR, they have to tell consumers exactly what they're doing with that data. Um, in the US, we have a little bit of a different approach where we have federal regulations that are geared towards industries. And that's really where Rectify comes into play to help these companies protect consumer identities when there's very specific sharing activities going on with the organization. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's, impossible i'll say to do business these days and like as a consumer listening out there you're going well i don't want if i share my information with my doctor i don't want my doctor to share the information with anybody else but the doctor has to share some of it with your insurance company like the fact that you visited that doctor if they're going to process a claim they have to share it with your insurance company they have to share it with uh, maybe they actually have a, a firm that they use that handles all their their insurance claim processing for them because they don't do that in-house so 
the information sharing is something that happens all the time. And I think now with GDPR and with this Cambridge Analytica thing out of Facebook, people are starting to ask more questions about it, uh, which is good to increase understanding. But this sharing has been going on for quite a while. And I mean, I think it's critical for businesses to be able to function for sharing to actually continue. Absolutely. And I know uh, Lisa has some examples of some data sharing activities that happen that we specifically are geared towards responding to and helping companies with. And we often see that when this happens, there's often mishaps and error that occurs that can be detrimental to that organization. So I don't know, Lisa, do you want to share a couple of those examples? Sure. So one of them is the University of Washington. This is all public information. So they they were initiated into a lawsuit of a discriminatory nature, and they had to produce documents in litigation to respond to the discovery request. They were The university had so many documents that they were not able to clean them up with, with Sharpies or whatever their process was doing that. And so the court fined them 50 cents a day to for every day that they miss on those documents, that fine wound up being $750,000. 50 Just cents per day per document, Per, right? per document, yeah. exactly, yes, yes. Yeah, that, that can add up fast. I mean, you can end up with hundreds of thousands of documents. I was having a conversation recently uh, talking about just like these data requests. And if you've got a request to whatever, it's produce all the copies of information about some person inside of a business. And you might think, well, this is an employee and this employee is making this request. Maybe it's it's tied to a uh a lawsuit where they maybe they're a former employee or some other issue there and it and you're being asked to produce all the copies of the records for some person or delete all of the records for some person and it's in a an HR system but it might also be in a manager's computer who whoever managed them may have uh, performance reviews they may have um, information about vacations they took they may have emails back and forth with that person that contains medical information that said hey you know I need to go out because I've got this surgery I have to go into so there, there's all sorts of systems where this information is scattered all over it's not just in one nice neat and tidy place uh, so how are as you're having conversations with the, the data privacy officers, if companies even have one, and maybe with GDPR now more companies will think about having one, but just with data privacy in general, folks are starting to think about it. Maybe they don't have an officer yet at, on being able to track and maintain all of the information that they have inside their business. So what we've been focusing with, with situations such as that is the data is collected from the manager's computer and so IT is heavily involved in helping retrieve the data that may be responsive to the request. And then we get it in one location. And of course, the company has no idea what's in it. They have no clue. And then there's stuff that's not even relevant. So we identify and organize it so that they can see what the content is and find things that they didn't know with using our artificial intelligence and conceptually clustering things. And then it gives the users a better working knowledge of what's contained in the data. And then we can start using our patterns and algorithms to go in and batch remove things, metadata, things like that, that you don't do if you, if you have a small organization to start printing out things and using Sharpies yeah, or so, using digital markers. Yeah, so this is going through from a perspective like most 
folks, if you're in the technology world, you've probably heard of a data warehouse. What what I heard you say, and I'll, I'll kind of say this back and, and correct me if I'm I'm off, but is even more than a data warehouse is get all of your data, dump it into what I'll call a data lake, and then you can have the AI can go through and, and sort through the giant mess and pull out all of the relevant things from the pool of everything because the data warehouse usually is a copy of all of the company's databases and you'll get all of your databases into a spot but really for a discovery request or other things you need a copy of all the data not just a copy of of all the information in the system of record or the system in the place where it was supposed to be true that's very well said exactly and what we're seeing um, also in the marketplace is really there's these different trigger points where data sharing really occurs and is more prevalent. And so it can be things like litigation discovery. And, you know, Lisa and I have a very strong background in legal discovery, and that's kind of the premise of our company and how we started this. But um, that's one example where there's a lot of data sharing involved. Another one is mergers and acquisitions. There's a lot of due diligence that goes on with that, and data has to be shared. There's also items such as corporate strategy, where corporations are trying to leverage consumer data to make more products. And so there's data sharing going on between the departments, but perhaps the consumer identities need to be protected in those data sets. And then there's also examples such as research, too. If you think about public health data and all these private and government entities that have researchers looking at this aggregated data set for increased societal knowledge, yet those patients in that public data set need to be protected. Yeah, so it's how do you aggregate, uh, anonymize, and and share, as, we, as I, I think about it through my, my cyber lens, it's kind of principles of least privilege. This is where you're only disclosing the information that you need to disclose for the uh, machine, system, person to accomplish a task that, that they're performing. They don't necessarily need to be able to see everything. Exactly. And so that's the balance we're trying to leverage with companies and keep them from, you know, being hit with fines due to releasing consumer identities or manual processes that cause inadvertent disclosure. There's one example that's pretty astounding if you put some numbers against it. But we actually had a mortgage lending company that had 52,000 documents that they needed to hand over to a bankruptcy court. So they had some consumers that were going through bankruptcy. They had to turn over that documentation, but not without first protecting those consumer identities and those documents. Unfortunately, that mortgage lending company did not have automated processes to do this. So they leveraged their in-house document management system, which is a fine solution. The problem with that is it was extremely manual. So those 52,000 documents took them literally 2,600 workdays and a labor cost of $520,000 to remove that data manually. And that's what Rectify is really looking to solve is leveraging artificial intelligence to en enable the identification of those consumer identities up front and automatically removing that. It helps with accuracy, efficiency, and it allows those people at those companies to focus on more meaningful work, too, than sitting there and doing these manual processes. Yeah, all the, uh, I, right now I can hear white shoe law firms screaming in terror because mm -hmm. all of the uh, first year associates that do nothing other than read through discovery documents with a, a black marker, um, all, all of that work's going to be able to be done much more quickly, potentially, by software as you guys roll out to market. The billable hour 
you know, yes. I know the importance of that, but yes, we are making that more efficient. Yeah. So we also do that with, with our workflows because we watch those attorneys do that. And so we've built in workflows and directifies to avoid the attorneys getting tired and making mistakes and helping them in flagging documents that you cannot release until somebody says it's okay. Yeah. And for, for all of the, the trial attorneys out there, they, this is wonderful because you, you'll end up back and forth and you have stuff on a, the judge orders it today and you have to produce it the next morning. Um, so software is going to solve their world. They're going to actually be able to go quickly and accurately where you, they might like to bill more hours. But in that case, you've only got 12 hours until you're back in court again and it doesn't work. So what made you decide to see this need, the market, and then go jump into starting your own company? So we could do so much more. We learned so much in corporate that, and of course we couldn't own the process because we had to ask for the budget for servers and people and who we wanted to work with us. We had to work with the people in-house. So literally we took off on our own and we had a corporate, that same corporate, be our first customer. And so that validated what we were doing. And then we kept adding different law firms, different companies, and different um, industries. See, I think the fun thing is, um, is that Lisa and I have, between the two of us combined, 50 plus years of this corporate legal experience. And at that time, you know, I was working on this in late high school, early college years. And at that time, we were dealing with documents, paper documents. And I have a distinct memory of spending hours and hours using a Sharpie marker and even redaction tape removing content from documents. And that requires double the work because you can see through the document with a Sharpie and the redaction tape often gets stuck in the copier. I mean, these silly anomalies that cause more tedious work. So fast forward a little bit, we were still working with corporate legal, but we were seeing the digitization of documents become more and more popular. And that's when Lisa and I really started leveraging technology to create efficiencies. And we invented workflow methodologies that we're even pursuing patents on today now that we own our own company to make these processes way more efficient. So that direct experience and working with those users, we really saw that we could create a solution to this need and automate it. And and that's how we started the company. Yeah. So, and this is one, we've got a, a number of folks here in San Antonio that listen and even out across iHeart streaming on the internet that are thinking they're in a cybersecurity job today. It pays really well. It's a stable job, a lot like what you all had before you, you went and took the leap here. Uh, and they're always looking to learn more from the, the guests that we have in on uh, yeah, you did it. You're, you're still here and you've got smiles on both of your faces. So <laughs> like, you can do it and it can work. It's very satisfying to take something that's not that we built for litigation mostly. And now we're repurposing it for a social good and helping consumers. And we're finding very the ways that we deal with data. It enables us to do more with the data to help companies and consumers work with it and manage their data. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and I'm joined by Lisa and Melissa from Rectify. And we're talking about data privacy and data disclosure and 
um, all the good things that they're working on. If you just uh, turned on your radio dial right now, you can listen to the rebroadcast and replay of this. It'll uh, go online on our website on Tuesday, May 29th. Uh, all of our programs go on Tuesday after we air on Saturday evenings. Uh, sometimes we've got basketball games that uh, bump us on out, but sadly enough at this point during the year, there's going to be no more basketball games on our radio station here in San Antonio. If you happen to be listening from the Bay Area right now or uh, Houston, there may still be a basketball game. Uh, Y'all may be still going at it, and uh, that's good stuff. Uh, But we're talking uh, about cybersecurity and data privacy here this evening. Uh, If you uh, wanted to as well, uh, you can listen to uh, our past episodes uh, on iTunes podcasts or Pocket Casts on Android or pick your favorite Android podcasting app. But I'll shamelessly plug Pocket Casts for no compensation whatsoever. Uh, They are not a sponsor of the program. I don't get paid anything if you use it. I've paid for it, and I just think it's a good product. So um, at the the start, we went into a little bit of information about identifiable information and the needs to scrub it, but I don't think we we went to the depth level that we should. So uh, for those that have been following along going, okay, this all sounds important, but give me some more details. So um, just help me define some terms out there for our audience. So Data privacy nerds all know about PII. What does that mean in English? So PII is personally identifiable information, and it is an important term in regards to data privacy. And it's basically defined by things that could personally identify an individual. So think of things like social security numbers, dates of birth, mailing address. What I think is interesting too, though, is that as data becomes more prevalent and exponential, we're finding that Items that would normally be considered non-PII are becoming PII. So things like license plate numbers, IP addresses, geolocation data. You know, it's really interesting as the explosion of data occurs, how new definitions of that will be defined. Yeah, it's an interesting one uh, on there to expand on this a little bit more. So it's like we used to have a White Pages phone book. And that White Pages phone book used to have my name, my phone number, my address, all of that in there. But now if you have a name, a phone number, and an address together, some states and some places will say that's PII and you have to handle it carefully. But we used to publish all that out in a book that we dropped in everyone's front porch. So, and and as you, you go through this as well, like I mean, my name and my address, my name's all over the internet. It's on our website, CyberTalk Radio. I own a home in Bear County. You can go in the Bear County tax records and I don't have any super secret need to have my tax records hidden. You can get them hidden. If you have a security and need to have your records removed there, you can go get them removed. I haven't felt that need yet. So hopefully I never end to run into that issue. But so my my home address you could go discover because my name's on the website and you could look and go, you know what? It looks like he runs a business in San Antonio and go to the Bear County. You can go to Harris County in Houston. You can go to most of the tax offices all over. You can go to the real estate deeds in basically every county is out there and available now. Uh, Cook County, I guess, is just testing out a blockchain pilot, which I think is interesting for those listening. And you're wondering, is government doing anything with this new cybersecurity stuff? Yeah, Cook County's moving their deed record history onto a blockchain. So some cool stuff going on out there. But so these things are public information in some contexts, but in other spots, businesses get in trouble for sharing it? Yeah, it's an interesting anomaly because what you're referring to is really public data sets, right? So we have census data. We have all these public records. Yet we also have, in certain industries and sectors in the U.S., protection against those. Uh, So if you look at PCI compliance, you know, that's for the financial industry, credit card processing industry. If you look at HIPAA, that's for healthcare. Uh, We do a lot of stuff for FERPA, 
which is for educational institutions. And so it's an interesting anomaly, but I think the importance is in certain realms where data is literally being exported and shared for a purpose, that third party or the public domain doesn't necessarily need that identified data, so that's where we come in. What's also interesting is that there was a study done by a data scientist many years ago, uh, LaTanya Sweeney, and she identified that there was a 0.04% chance of being able to re-identify any individual in uh, a de-identified data set by combining that with data sets that were already in public record. So very interesting concept, but I think if you're looking at very specific triggers like we talked about earlier for litigation discovery or public health data, mergers and acquisitions, uh, there's a lot of things beyond PII that need protected too. It could be IP and trade secrets. We protect a lot of that as well. And so that's very helpful in that context. So as, as you, you go through and you look at at the businesses and you're saying, you know what, protecting trade secrets. So if I've, I have um, a secret formula for my hot sauce and I don't want people emailing that back and forth, uh, would that, would I use a, an email content filtering solution? Do like, wh where and how do I track all these? And there's, I've, I feel like, I mean, there's been folks with these data loss prevention, data leak prevention, data identification and classification systems for quite a while that say that you can use my one system to do absolutely everything. But I've heard you, you be very specific about here's the things that Rectify makes sense for. And I'm, I'm not here, I think, hearing you say that Rectify will solve all of your data flow workflow management pieces. So uh, w where do you plug into the ecosystem where you're putting a set of information into a specific room, whether it's for discovery or, or M&A into a data room, that makes sense. But uh, for internal communications back and forth, if you don't want a trade secret email, that's not rectify? Correct, that's yeah. correct, okay. yeah. We don't work in that, in that space. So what we are looking to do, though, is there are situations where the companies have document management systems that are, where their employees are required to maintain their documents. And so we're looking at working with integrating into some of those companies to help because that's where the data is. And yeah. so when you have to export it, we can help you clean it up. Or you can stop people from exporting 4,600 documents in one day and without scrubbing all of them. It's interesting is, is some of these different, whether it's Snowden or whether it's the, the uh, Waymo, uh, Google, and Uber is, issue there where lots of documents got downloaded before employees left the company, those sorts of things. Uh, and these document management systems haven't been tracking and filtering and purging and cleaning. Um, they've made it easy to get all the information into one place. And they've been made it easy for people to download all the information too. That's true. Very true. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, right now we've been working with very specific data sets that are going outside the organization and they happen to be large data sets. We're not talking about hundreds of documents or five documents. We're talking about hundreds of thousands or even millions of documents. So that's where the pain point's high enough to say, okay, rectify. We need you to rectify our data before we send it out to this third party. Um, but what is really exciting, what Lisa mentioned, is for our growth, we're considering these integration points so that we can go right into the organization. We're right at that level, at the document level, and those workflows in the doc management system, and they can leverage the rectify technology at that point. 
Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break here for a news, traffic, and weather update. Uh, we will be back talking data privacy, classification, and um, it goes through some more stories about uh, these workflows and where and how people get themselves into a bind uh, when they, they can't handle classifying things in a timely manner. Electronic files and digital data are the lifeblood of many businesses, with ransomware, malware, and global networks of criminal hackers who can attack and destroy from anywhere in the world. These files and data are now under constant threat. Here are three tips on how businesses can protect their data. 1. Begin with an encrypted off-site data backup. 2. Establish an active network defense against criminal hackers. 3. Secure your data when it travels outside of your office. All three steps are required to build an active security shield as sophisticated and multi-layered as the threat themselves. Learn more on cybertalkradio.com. Brought to you by Jungle Disk. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined by some legal industry veterans that are now uh, running an AI-based technology company. So thank you, Lisa and Melissa, for agreeing to join us again. Uh, if you just happen to tune on after that news traffic and weather update, uh, you can catch the first half of the program on our rebroadcast on our website on www.cybertalkradio.com. We'll go online on Tuesday. Uh, you can also catch all of our prior episodes. I went on a rant about data privacy and who's collecting what a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's the first time I've ever done a monologue episode. I don't know if it'll be the last, but... I was so upset about some of the news articles out there and just how inaccurate things were uh, that I, I felt the need to ramble for a whole hour. So if you, you did want to listen to this and, and really uh, learn a little bit about who's collecting what and how, um, you can hear that in a past program. Uh, today we're going to talk about when you as a, a business uh, are being asked to turn over your data or if you've got a business partnership or relationship where you need to share information how do you share that information in a way where you only share the absolute minimum that you need to? Um, because in this this age of integration and partnership and connectivity, uh, you're often um, sending records. So maybe if you're going to run a marketing campaign, you might send a whole bunch of information about your customers over to the marketing agency. Did you really need to send all of that? Could you have scrubbed it down to some other minimized set? 
and can you scrub it in an automated manner? Because often the whole thing just gets sent over because the, as businesses, you might not have controls where uh, you can minimize the sets of information very easily and cleanly to share it. And uh, you go, do I want to do 10,000 hours of work or do I just want to send the whole thing over and I'm going to have a contractual clause with the marketing agency that says, when this contract's over, you agree to delete and destroy all the stuff that we sent you which, by the way, we know doesn't happen very often. You hear the Cambridge Analytica thing of, oh, yeah, your Facebook had a contractual clause that said they were supposed to delete all of that stuff and they weren't supposed to send it to the next party or they weren't supposed to send it to the next party. And um, you can go back in courts and you can enforce contracts, but you can't put Pandora back in the box. So thank you uh, both uh, very much again for joining us. And if you did stick with us through the break, we'd promise to to talk about some examples uh, here. So... It's like I just mentioned as you, you go through some of these spots where information is getting shared and maybe more is getting shared than needed to. Uh, how do you help businesses uh, go through that? So like if say I have a, a document management system, we talked about those in abstract in the first half of the program. But what's an example of a document management system? Because I think many people, sadly enough, are still at the point where they're going, I probably need one of these and I don't have one yet. So a document management system is basically a file cabinet where all employees are required to store their documents. So you can get the different versions. You, it's, it's controlled. It's contained. It has its own systems of archiving files or deleting files when, they're, when their retention is gone. So it gives the organization more control over their documents versus just ha- sitting on everybody's individual machine. Plus, you can also share your intellectual property and information within your company. So the way a document management system could also work is when you have to export a file from that, it gives the user the ability to, if they had rectify in their system, to remove the information as well. So it, it, it the, that gives everybody a tool. Yeah. So if I've implemented something where I'm, I'm storing all these now, that's that's more than just a, a file share um, inside my company, because the file share doesn't like I might have backups on it and those sorts of things, but it doesn't really have any versioning or control or, or much of the rest of that. So I've, I've, I've upgraded to uh, a document management system, whether it's uh, something like a, a the product, the documentation product, whether it's a SharePoint or other type of platform and system like that, or Box, or a lot of these folks that are um, starting to uh, put controls and permissions and access uh, around uh, data information. Uh, and so if I've, I've have my files into a system like that now, um, off of people's hard drives, off of their file shares, off of uh, all the, the other spots inside of a system. And I want to be able to share these things quickly and efficiently with my business partners, though, still, or in the case of uh, court or discovery, like you, you had talked before the break, someone got fined hundreds of thousands of dollars for being late on discovery deadline. So, yeah, how do, now that I, I have all the information there, and, and let's I mean, go, go through an example of what type of things are, are people using your software to scrub out of a file before they either share it with a business partner or turn it over to discovery case and maybe some of those you can talk about easier than others court cases are tricky court cases are tricky there's other data sharing examples as well Um, i'll go back to the example we shared before the break where the mortgage lending company had to use a document management system to share files based on lenders that were going into bankruptcy and what's important there is that There's oftentimes so many documents, there could be up to over 130 documents that pertain to one particular 
person that has that loan with that company. So if you multiply that over multiple consumers, you all of a sudden have a very large data set that you need to protect. So one of the things that happens with the Rectify technology is that we're combining you know, several trends such as data privacy, AI, and data sharing, and we're using those facets to help these companies remove that data in an automated way. So the first thing that happens is what we call an expose process. So during that expose process, we basically are able to identify automatically the themes and content residing in the data set. In that mortgage lending company, they know exactly what data they need to remove. But if we had another example where a company may not know what information resides in their data set, that exposed process is really important. And that's kind of the sweet spot of our artificial intelligence because it can automatically start grouping themes and contents and extracting identities in those data sets. The second step that we go through is called our auto detect step. And this is where, especially for the mortgage lending company, would be very beneficial because we can automatically detect those consumer identities and those identifiers, that PII that we mentioned earlier. And that's really beneficial because it's flagged directly to that person responsible for removing the data. And then the third step is our auto defend process. And this is where that information that's been flagged as sensitive is automatically removed. And when we talk about removal, there's a couple of terms we use for that. One is redaction, primarily used in the legal space. Another is de-identification, a more general term in other industries. And so we're de-identifying that data in a, in a way that it cannot be found once that share process happens. And so the fourth process is really the share part, where it goes exported outside to that third party or in the public domain, and no information can be re-identified at that point. You know, we also talk during the break casually about things like Adobe. If you're using things like Adobe, unfortunately, there are many layers to that, and those redaction boxes can be peeled off. In addition to that, you can often find that information that's hidden from the redaction box and the metadata of an Adobe document. So that's where that step is really important that we're completely cleaning and scrubbing the data set for those companies. Yeah, if you uh, same thing with uh, Word documents, even that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. on, things get sent out with track changes in them and uh, all the time, the extra metadata inside files. So you, you look at the version you're sending and you're like, well, I've deleted all the stuff out of there, but the track changes button was still on so somebody could go back and rewind inside the file. So that same sort of stuff exists inside of uh, PDFs, that Adobe document format. You might go, well, a PDF is this read-only thing. It's it, Just as I see it on my screens, the only thing you can see, and that's not true when you actually dig into the, the inside bits and bytes of the file. Exactly. Um, so as these, uh, these documents... Uh, get shared across so in in that that case if you're doing these processes manually you've got 130 documents you've got thousands of mortgages to go through but if i'm just thinking even at 30 seconds a document it's going to take me an hour per person to to go through and do this what sort of of speed change do you have going from person to artificial intelligence the speed chain is the speed change is really quite prevalent. Actually, we have a 93% improvement on time. So in that example, 
earlier, it took that company 2,600 workdays to remove that using a manual process. Using the Rectify system, it depletes down to 26 workdays. Um, and we have the capacity to remove private data in a million documents in 24 hours. So depending on the workflow of the organization, that's a really scalable process where leveraging technology is way more beneficial than doing that manually. Um, and again, the accuracy and efficiency is really important. Um, and we're really helping those organizations focus on a quality control aspect of data privacy versus a manual, let's find it, let's remove it, and hope we got it all processed. Yeah. So as you're going out and, and having conversations, whether it's with uh, law firms or in-house counsel or data privacy teams um, at companies that are thinking about all these sorts of things, uh, when they, they hear about what you're able to do, what they're able to, to, to do from a change perspective in their business processes, uh, what kind of reactions are you hearing? We're hearing peace of mind. That's what, that is the first thing that a compliance officer will tell you because it provides peace of mind to me. When you, you say peace of mind, it's, I mean, I think about stuff as if I was in litigation and all of a sudden I had a big discovery request. I don't have the people on staff to process this stuff. I'm not even certain maybe that I have outside counsel that could scale up and process these sorts of things. So like, is, is it peace of mind from a perspective of now you know if you get asked to do something, you can get it done and you're not going to get in trouble with your boss anymore or like or, uh, help me elaborate a little bit on, on what are they really thinking when they say peace of mind there? Well, peace of mind, with having technology behind the people, it gives them another layer of support. And so when you have the technology and you're training this tool and you can look at the data, and then you can put the people on the appropriate stacks of data, then you can, do, you can, make, you can meet your deadlines and also know that, as Melissa said, we're trying to give more quality control instead of being reactive and trying to find the information that's, that's the content that they want to remove. I think another benefit too is really standardizing the way in which they're dealing with these data privacy issues. So once they implement Rectify, we have standardized processes, we have standardized workflow. So to be able to re repeat that process within your organization gives you a lever that allows you to, one, decrease the risk of being fined because you're exposing consumer identities, and two, be able to really increase consumer trust, too, because consumers know that you're dealing with their data in an appropriate manner. So I think that also comes into play. And I'll add on to that is that also what we're providing is we're providing an audit trail for everything that they do in our system so that it's very defensible and they can defend what they did and like the standardization and the defensibility of that is huge. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the things I'm, I've heard of folks doing is that they, they get an outside contracting firm to go do this, this document redaction for them, which means they're sharing the information yet again with another third party in order to actually go through and be able to make the response request. And then if, if you're doing this in a hurry, you may be doing vendor selection and you may not be able to do all the diligence needed of, well, if I share this information with this vendor, how are they storing it? What are they doing to secure it? All the rest of these. So you could end up in, in a data leakage or data breach situation when you were, were trying to redact things um, so that you can turn them over um, or share them safely. And you ended up having to share the raw documents that then were, were leaked out uh, side of your business. 
So I had an example from a pharmaceutical company that I was looking for their you know, support in, for our business, for Rectify, and they literally said that they had a vendor that, that did redaction, but it was people. It was all yeah. people doing it, digitization on a computer. Yeah, and it, they may be people that may not be located in your jurisdiction. Exactly, uh, and this not is, the highest paid people either. No, so yeah, I mean, could they make more money by reading the information, saving it, and selling it to somebody than they're getting paid from their employer? So like these are, so yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. Uh, and what is that value of the information that you're you're sharing with that third party for them to go process? What's the, the value to, to somebody uh, I'm, people are getting much more intelligent, sadly enough, about the criminal value of, of data. Uh, as you see these data breaches and you see uh, marketplaces pop up and people are, are hearing and learning more about how to take information and go sell it uh, for a, a profit somewhere and um, really controlling access over your information, who it's being shared with and how, and then if that principle of least privilege and, and least access of only sharing what you need uh, with folks outside your door, the, the software solution's not going to uh, run into an ethical dilemma or a financial dilemma ever uh, where an individual can get compromised. So if someone out there in our listening audience goes, you know what, uh, I need something like this or I need to pass this along to my general counsel and have them look into making sure that we have something like this implemented, where would they go to get in contact with y'all? They can go to our website, look at some of the resources that we have there. It's www.rectifydata.com. You can also contact us by emailing us at hello at rectifydata.com. There you go. And you are headquartered in San Antonio, Texas? We have offices in San Antonio, Texas and Austin, Texas Texas. as well. There you go. And so if they ping you at hello and you you answer back and say yes and they go okay i want this stuff plugged into my i want to do this with you immediately are you you guys working on short turnaround deadlines for clients all the time like how how much of a a, your world is is somebody calls you in a panic that happens all the time Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so newsflash folks please be proactive these are the kind of things we talk about this all the time like data breach you're going to have one eventually. If you don't know who you're going to pick up the phone and call after you've been breached, when you have been breached, it's a terrible time to figure that out. That is true, very true. Yes. So figure out what you're going to do for data disclosure and de-identification and all these things ahead of time, please. So in reality, our lead time is very quick. Once they have their data identified, we start processing that data and they are assigned by the project manager. We have a team to support them, and we work with their teams on their side, and we can literally, like Melissa said, we process over a million documents in 24 hours, and we have resources in other areas to help them in other facets of, of whatever may be coming up too, as well as site breaches and, and data security. Yeah. Now, it's it, on the, the data breach side, uh, we've talked about this on a regular basis. It, it's like when you have a physical breach of your office, uh, you pick up the phone and you call the police, or if you've, your office is on fire, you call the fire department. But if your computer systems have been hacked, you call the police. Like they're gonna, I mean, they're often in a bad spot. They're like the people that hacked you are in Eastern Europe, and we don't have cooperation or extradition treaties with them, so I can't help you. So you have to call somebody else in the event of a data breach. And many folks haven't gone and figured that stuff out yet. Uh, and I think on this data privacy, whether it's um, GDPR, whether it's Massachusetts or California or some of the other states, I just saw Michigan 
tried to ask the NSA to scrub and redact their own data that they're collecting now uh, recently here. So we're starting to see a number of these changes in this landscape where automated high-speed solutions like Rectifier are going to be required. Either that or we're going to have to teach all of America is going to need to go to law school um, to learn redaction. Yeah, I think what we'll see in the future is companies begin to really think about privacy as a means to gain a competitive edge because consumers are becoming more and more aware of how their data is being handled. And if the companies use privacy by design and use that as the culture of their business, they really can gain market share because they're going to gain consumer trust. They're going to avoid fees, litigation, fines, all those things. And so I think we'll see that become more and more of a trend as data sharing becomes more popular. Yeah. I mean, I think Apple's a, a good example of a, a company. They don't go out and blow their own horn, but a lot of their consumers and privacy folks will go out and do it for them. But as they're in the business of, of selling you hardware or selling you software, they're not in the business of selling advertising. Uh, many of the other services you interact with are in the business of selling you advertising. And in that case, they're going to be used your data to help inform those advertising decisions. So uh, I think there's opportunities out there for, for many more models now. Netflix is another one. So everyone, if you go into the, the TV world, um, everyone has said there's no way to support publishing and content without commercials. And Netflix has figured out how to go do that. So uh, you, you look at, at privacy across here, and I, I think as we see some of these services evolve, uh, people will be able to um, pick and choose whether they uh, trade money to remain private uh, or keep their data private or whether they agree to, to share their information um, in, in order to receive advertising to receive a service for free. So you're, you're in the, the tech side of this world now, but you, you all both have a significant amount of experience uh, prior to this. But what, what led you, you down just uh, from um, the, the career, education? What, what got you into to doing all of, of what you're doing now? So uh, a little bit of your, your personal story to help some of our audiences thinking about, can I be a person that can go do these sorts of things too? Well, I'll start with my example. Um, I started working in legal when I'm, I was in my early 20s, and that was basically my first management position. And that's not really a very high-level management position in legal. You're probably a secretary. But I took on the role of being responsible and dealing with files and being proactive and literally just pitched in wherever I could. And working in legal, you're working with getting ready for trial and working a lot of overtime and you do it and then you start realizing there's better ways to do this. So that literally brought me to working in corporate legal eventually and that's where I gained more responsibilities. I had more authoritative power because I was willing to put in the effort and I got the support of my supervisors because they trusted what you were doing and you were honest, hardworking and it was just a good fit. And that's when I had teams and, and I'll let Melissa share her piece of it, but that's, that's how I got started. Yeah. So what I heard there is, uh, show up, work hard. If you see an opportunity to improve and make your business that you're, you're part of better, grab it, take it, make it better. And then if you, you end up with ideas where, you know, you have a good idea and the business isn't willing to implement it. And that's when you can take that entrepreneurial leap. Because um, sometimes businesses, for whatever reasons inside their own culture, are unable 
to take that next step forward, that next advancement. Uh, but um, you will find other customers out there in the market that may be willing to, or even as I think you all said, you, you may um, have your, your former employers as a customer now. So they're able to come buy something, but not necessarily able to internally make the changes themselves. And you hit on a really good point that I didn't really think about before on my first statement, but sometimes I didn't think I was paid or compensated for what I was doing, but I always had an opportunity to learn and I thought you can never take that away. Yeah. And so that, so I always made it, I was going to get something out of it. I was learning from it. And at the time too, the company paid for my education. So yeah. I took advantage of every benefit that company could give me. And that was and I and my t attorneys that I worked for supported me in every way. It was a really a amazing experience. Yeah. And how about you, Melissa? So for me, yes. I mean, uh, I worked part time in corporate legal my very last days of high school and then on into college. And that's how I funded myself to have fun money. And that's where I really learned a lot about corporate legal, the exposure, um, and the workflows. And as I mentioned in the first half, you know, there was a lot of tedious work involved. And so being able to take charge, be in a position to manage teams and find workflow efficiencies, and then have people applaud that, it keeps you striving to keep identifying those workflow efficiencies and making the work better, harder, more or better, easier and more efficient. And so taking those leaps and then translating those later into technology and using technology advances to display those workflow methodologies was really empowering to see that play out and still enable better work today. It's really a fun way to see it and watch that evolve. Yeah, well, thank you uh, both for coming on, talking about what you're working on, talking about how um, the landscape is changing, the expectations of courts are changing, the expectations of, of consumers out there and business partners, uh, who you can trust, who you can share your information with, um, how it's getting cleaned up, and, and all the rest of that is, is evolving rapidly, and uh, we're going to need to see um, technology advances to meet the expectations of all of those different constituents uh, as uh, the pace of, of the information that's getting collected is uh, doubling still, I think, yeah, what you said, every one to two years? Yes, 1.2 oh, years. Oh, 1.2, not one to two. Yeah, 1.2. Okay, yeah. So we're, we're collecting a lot of it out there. The hard drive manufacturers are going to stay in business, and uh, we're going to need to have solutions that make that easy. So, uh, again, thank you for joining us here on CyberTalk Radio. If you wanted to hear the full uh, version of this and you just joined us on air, uh, check our website out on Tuesday at www.cybertalkradio.com.